Good morning. So welcome you uh, into Redwood. If you're visiting with us, we are uh, so happy that you're here. Uh, glad to see that uh, everybody survived uh, last night. If, if you missed out last night, we had our Harvest Festival or our Halloween Festival or Halloween Bash or Fall Festival or whatever name you want to call it by. But uh, I hope that you were able to check that out last night. This room, the chairs were completely pushed over into this corner. We had uh, carnival games all over the place. Um, other room we had food and a bounce house, which I think is still in there, and uh, cakewalk and all the good stuff. And so, uh, if if you missed out on that, um, uh, sad that you missed it. I'm, I'm glad for those of you who were able to be here and, and have a good time. And uh, I want to take a moment too and just say thank you to the team that put that on. I know Tanya and Kathy helped spearhead that, but I mean it was a massive team effort all the way around. And at the risk of forgetting people, I'm not going to start rattling off all the names, but uh, thank you for those of you who were here. That's always uh, really one of our biggest events of the year. Uh, we had several hundred people here last night, kids coming through, and uh, it's just fun to kind of hang out and get to give the kids something, you know, if, if it's candy or some fun or, or whatever it might be, it's, it's always a good time to... Just hang out and, and experience that time with those kids. Uh, speaking of kids, I know there's a few uh, visitors and kiddos in here this morning. Uh, kiddos are certainly welcome in here, but if you're looking for uh, some kids programming, if you've got uh, small ones through, through the doors to my right, we have our nursery for uh, babies and, and toddlers. Uh, out this way to the left uh, is, is our preschool and up. Uh, if you go out that direction with, the, with somebody, uh, Ken's out there can help point uh, you where to go. Again, certainly welcome to stay here. Uh, he's pointing right now, so um, showing you where to go. Uh, from just his seat without even bothering to get up and help look. So that's, that's, <laughs> that is servitude right there, my friends, servitude. So. But we are, are certainly thrilled that you are here with us today. Uh, and I'm certainly thrilled because we are starting a brand new series today uh, called Things Jesus Never Said. And I'm excited about this series in particular because uh, this is a series that um, allows us to kind of maybe see through some perceptions that we have helped to create. Uh, maybe, maybe you're aware of this, maybe you participate in this, but uh, we live in a world where we, we live through filters. You know, we, we live through filters, whether it's social media. You think about social media and all the great things social media can do. I mean, we live 1,600 miles away from our family, so social media allows us to share as much of our lives now with our family back in Oklahoma and our friends back in Oklahoma and, and then the, the friends we made when we lived in Arizona for a stretch. And, and uh, I mean, just, again, it allows you to connect all the way uh, around the world in, in a moment's notice. But social media also uh, can do uh, some, some not-so-good things. Now, we're, we're aware of some of those. But one in particular that social media does is it allows us to really filter our lives. I mean, when I, I share things on Facebook, I don't really share that I've had a bad day. I don't really share that I'm in a bad mood. I don't really share uh, the, the things that aren't good. I share the things that, what, are going to get a lot of likes, you know? I share the pictures of my kids doing funny things or saying funny things. Or uh, just yesterday, we haven't actually shared this one yet, but just yesterday, for example, uh, we had, uh, uh, most of you are aware, most of you have informed me several times that my Sooners lost yesterday. I know, I watched the game. Um, but uh, the end of the game didn't go so well, and I may or may not, I can't confirm or deny that I yelled at my TV loudly and may or may not have kicked something that was in front of me. Um, 
You have to, I have to understand something. Disclaimer here. When I watch sports, not only do I sometimes forget I'm a pastor, I sometimes forget I'm a Christian, okay? Don't judge me. Um, but Elsie, my oldest, came into the room. Dad, what's wrong? And I just snapped at her. Get out! <laughs> Dad, what, what happened? I said, just, just go away. So she runs over and hides. Well, then a few minutes later, she's back with Jennifer in the back room going, Dad yelled at me, and I didn't even do anything. <laughs> Those are the things that are going to wind up, you know, on, on social media, right? I mean, we, we don't share our worst moments on social media. We filter our lives on there. But what this kind of does, too, if you think about it, is that's it, it, just kind of a snapshot of really how we live our lives today. And if you think about it, you probably live your life, and you probably view the world really through a certain uh, lens or perspective, you probably look at the world uh, through a certain, uh, certain set of eyes, and, and a, a lot of that has to do with what you fill your life with or what uh, has, has helped build your life. So maybe it's things like you know, a, a certain political point of view changes the way you view what's going on in the world. Maybe where you grew up changes your view of the world. Maybe when you grew up changes your view. Your family, uh, your, your, your socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things play into a, a changing how we view the world. And here's kind of the danger. When we look at uh, a certain uh, worldview, and, and we allow our perceptions to change that, we can also very easily allow our perceptions to change our view of Jesus. We can allow Jesus then to become who we want him to become, based on maybe who we need him to be, or who we want him to be in that moment in time. And, and it's kind of, you know, I, I always joke, I say, I'm really glad I'm not following a Jesus who's just like me. And you all are probably very glad you're not following a Jesus who's just like me. We can joke about that. But if we stop and think about it, if we start following a Jesus that's a lot like us, that's actually pretty dangerous. Because we've lost sight of who he really is. And I can do a lot of things for you. I can't save you. I can't save your soul. I can't offer you salvation. Jesus can, and that's it. And, and, and so we have to be very careful not to let our perception of the world change who Jesus is in our eyes. And so that, that's kind of what this series is designed to do. Because I think a lot of times as Christians, maybe, maybe without even really realizing we're doing it, we've started believing some things that aren't even in the Bible. We've started believing things about Jesus that he never said or never did. And, and we need to step back sometimes and we need to kind of uh, look into Scripture a little bit more and realize that, hey, Jesus never said that. And often, and, and what this series is going to do over the next few weeks, we're going to we look at five uh, statements that he never made. Often, not only did he not say that, but he actually said the exact opposite of that. And so today I thought, we're going to start with a nice easy one today. Uh, we're going to look at this statement that Jesus never said, you don't need to forgive others. Nice, soft, easy topic right off the bat, Right? Nice, soft, and easy one. Because let's be honest, folks, when it comes to talking about forgiveness, that might be one of the hardest topics for you to think about and talk about. And here's the thing about forgiveness. It's something that we all are faced with, because no matter what our differences are, again, I just kind of mentioned some of those earlier, you know, whether it's where we're from, when we grew up, family, et cetera, et cetera, no matter what our differences are, every single one of us has been hurt at some point by someone. Sometimes our hearts change a little bit. You know, maybe what, what happened to you hurt you worse than something that happened to me. 
Maybe the same thing happened to both of us and it hurt me more than it hurt you. I mean, we, we, we receive these a little bit differently. But we've all been hurt. And here's the thing about forgiveness. It is it's hard. Let's just be very, very honest. It is hard. It's hard to do. And here's what I want to say this too, and, and, and you may disagree with me, but I think forgiveness is virtually impossible without Jesus. I know for me, if I didn't believe Jesus the way I did and believe in him the way I did, or the way I do, I don't know how, how, if I could forgive as easily as I can. It would be a much, much more difficult uh, process for me. But here's the thing, too, and, and even when you look in the Bible, forgiveness is not a given. Now, we think about forgiveness in terms of the New Testament, and Jesus preached it. In fact, Jesus preached it like 120 plus times. Jesus talked about forgiveness. But in the Old Testament, there's a lot of examples where uh, the Old Testament heroes, they didn't assume that God was going to forgive them or that God would forgive others. It wasn't a given in the Old Testament. But here's the thing I want to kind of look at because we, I think, sometimes view this. I always, uh, you hear me say this, we view our Christianity through our American eyes a lot of times. And what do we kind of look at when it comes to getting hurt? Remember that, that, that old phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know, or, or fool me twice, you know, you're going to get it next time. You're dead to me, kind of thing. Well, we, we say that, but I mean, that's kind of where we're at, right? That's kind of where we approach this. Because it's easier than to forgive others, it's easier just to hold a grudge. It's easier just to cut that person out and, and let them, like, forget you. I'm done. But here's the thing, and I want you to understand this because this is probably the hardest truth that we're going to talk about today, forgiveness is expected if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus. It is expected. It is a requirement if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus. Here's how I know this. Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus begins this teaching. Early on in his ministry, he begins this teaching, uh, and, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And, and if you're unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably Jesus' most famous teaching, uh, at, least, at least in terms of uh, an overall lesson or overall sermon. And if you're kind of new to this whole church thing, kind of new to this whole Jesus thing, and you're like, man, I, I'm curious about following Jesus, so, so what's expected of me? What do I need to do? I mean, go home and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It'll take you like 10 or 15 minutes to read that. But in this, Jesus gives like 19 quick hit lessons on, if you're going to follow me, here's what you're supposed to do. Okay? And it goes to this list of things that some of them are kind of obvious, like don't murder each other, you know, like that seems pretty straightforward. But he tells us like, you know, we're supposed to be the, the light of the world. He tells us things about uh, what it really means to cheat on your spouse or, or what it really means uh, to, to uh, that kind of eye for an eye type of thing and loving your enemies. And right in the middle of this, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us instructions on how to pray. Now, most of us know this. In fact, this might be one of the most famous Bible passages of all because this, this is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I can tell you a, a ton of non-Christians that I know that know this and probably could, could spout it off for you out of memory. In fact, I remember back when I was in high school, our, 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 our football coaches, before every single game, had us get on a knee and huddle together and say the Lord's Prayer, usually right before he gave us a few more colorful instructions about the game. Not sure how that all worked out, but it did. But we know this prayer, right? Again, most of you probably can spout this from memory in the old King James Version. 
Probably couldn't do it in the newer versions if I asked you to, but I'm like you. I grew up memorizing it in the old version. But how's this prayer go? Think about it. We, we, we know this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Remember what comes next? Forgive us our debts. Trespasses, debts, you know. Forgive us our debts, and here's what comes next. As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is where I like this a little bit more in the newer translations and the old ones. Excuse me. This is where I like this a little bit more in the, in the newer translations. Because trespasses, you know what I think of when I, I, I think about trespasses? Those signs you see on people's property, don't trespass. In other words, don't walk on my property. You know what I think about when I think of debts? You owe me something. So I think of debts as, as a little harder hitting as, as I read this. But I love how this, this is especially phrased in the, the NIV here. As we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, what, he, what is he saying? Forgive us our debts after we have already completed forgiving others. And, and then Jesus goes on to finish this prayer. Uh, and, and, and what I love about this, this is he finishes the prayer and then he comes back right afterwards and he gives a little bit of commentary analysis on the prayer. And you know the one part of the, comment, or the, one part of the prayer he decides to talk more about is this line right here. Because look in verse uh, Matthew chapter sixteen, or Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter six, verse fourteen, he says, "If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." Now, that seems pretty straightforward, right? Seems pretty cut and dry. What Jesus is trying to tell us there. And I think that Jesus goes from giving this instruction on how to pray for a reason because he wants us to understand the seriousness behind why we should be forgiving other people. Because if we don't, we're not going to be able to understand what God has done for us. In fact, I'd put it this way. We cannot understand God's forgiveness in our lives if we're not willing to extend it to God's children in return. Here's the thing that's hard to understand sometimes. Every person you see is somebody God created, God loves, and God died for. Even that person who has slapped you in the face. Even that person who has punched you in the gut. Even that person who has hurt you over and over. And I will be honest, there are times that I want to not believe that statement. There's a lot of times that we want to assume that person who's hurting us couldn't possibly be one of God's children, but they are, just like I am. And here's the thing, that person's hurt me probably just like I've hurt somebody else without even realizing it. And often when we hurt people, we don't even know we've done it. There's a very famous story of forgiveness in the Bible. It's actually found back towards the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. And and I kind of want to give you some context on this because there's a lot that builds into this. So this is kind of the long story short version of Joseph. But go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham has his son Isaac. Isaac has two sons. They're twins named Esau and Jacob. Esau actually comes out first, so he's the firstborn. He gets all the rights of the firstborn that they talked about called the birthright and the inheritance, but not just the inheritance, the blessing and the importance, the status that comes with that. So it wasn't even just about finances. It was about status. He was the heir. But Jacob wanted all that. 
So Jacob swindles his brother out of it, gets his mom to team up with him and swindles him out of this inheritance. So then Jacob goes on, and he's now got this inheritance. He's got this status, and Jacob decides that he wants to marry uh, uh, this woman. And we, we read about this in Genesis 29. He finds this woman named Rachel who is gorgeous, beautiful woman. And so he talks to her father, Laban. He says, hey, yeah, work for me for seven years, and you can have Rachel. So Joseph, or, uh, Jacob works for him for seven years, but Laban pulls a fast one on him and says, no, actually, first you've got to marry her sister who's not very attractive that nobody wants. So he gets to marry this woman named Leah, Rachel's older sister. Okay? Then after seven more years, he finally gets Rachel. And, and so he's married to two, two women. They're sisters. One of them is his uh, favorite, his choice, but yet she's his second. Okay? He, he's forced to marry somebody else first. Now, a little side note here. This is a little pastoral commentary on this. Men, if you're thinking of marrying a woman and you first marry her older sister and then come back and marry her, the likelihood of drama is high. (laughs) I want you to understand this. So, back to the story. I haven't met anybody who's married two sisters and not had drama. I haven't met anybody who's married two sisters, period, but that's beside the point. The time comes for having children, and uh, Rachel's not able to have children. Leah starts having children uh, for, for uh, Jacob. Specifically, she has sons. She has four sons. Rachel, who knows she's the favorite, starts getting upset. She starts getting uh, jealous and bitter. So what does she do? The only logical thing she could do, she sends her handmaiden to Jacob to have children for her. So the handmaiden has two children. What's this do? This makes Leah upset. Leah is now past the age of being able to have children. So she does the only logical thing. She sends her handmaiden to Jacob. And there's two more sons. Got the math going? We've got eight sons so far. None by Rachel. Uh, So what do we do here now? The sisters start to squabble and fight. And uh, so Leah swindles Rachel. And somehow in all of this, God blesses her and her womb gets reopened. And bam, two more sons. Remember when I said that there was going to be drama? There's drama. Ten sons born to Jacob, none by Rachel, his choice wife, six by Leah, two by each of the handmaidens. And then finally, Rachel's able to conceive and she has a son named Joseph. Number 11 on the list, but let's just be honest, which one do you think is going to be Jacob's favorite son? The one born to his favorite wife. And I just have to think here that that Joseph, as he grew up, Number 11, with 10 older brothers, treated as the favorite, knew he was the favorite. And I mean, I don't know, this just kind of seems like a teenage boy thing to do. Probably let the older brothers know where he stood in daddy's eyes compared to them. And like older brothers, when a younger brother is getting everything, they don't take that too well. And so what do they do? They decide, hey, let's kill him. Because that's what older brothers do. Okay, I've got one younger brother. I haven't quite ever gotten that far with him. I had him convinced once that when I was a kid, I was terrified of the toilet, so I put him in it and flushed it and, um, uh, to see if he would go down because I was afraid I was going to go down, and then he didn't, and I knew I was safe. He believed that story till he was 20, by the way. Along with several other stories he'll hear, and he'll come back with, you were a horrible older brother. Like, you know, what are you going to do? You know? 
But I never threatened to actually kill him, or as uh, Joseph's brothers do here, they do the more logical, sensible thing instead of killing him. They just sell him into slavery instead. And then take his clothes and tear him up and throw some blood on him and tell their father, oh, he was killed by a wild animal. I never got that far. So at least I'm a better brother than some of the brothers in the Bible here, okay? So you got this story with Joseph. He's been sold into slavery because his brothers hated him that much. But as the story progresses, he gets into Egypt. He winds up in the home of a man named Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar is a very powerful man um, in the court of Pharaoh. But the problem is Potiphar's wife likes Joseph, tries to make a move on him. Joseph says no. She does a sensible thing and accuses him of sexual assault. So he gets thrown in prison. He goes to prison. And while he's there, he winds up interpreting dreams. And he eventually catches the eye of, of Pharaoh. And he interprets some dreams of Pharaoh. And he becomes this powerful person, now the second most powerful person in Egypt. Don't ask me to explain how this story works. Okay? Doesn't really follow logical sense. But now Joseph is the second most powerful person in Egypt. Possibly the second most powerful person in the world. And he's gone through all of this in the span of about 17 years. And as the story goes on, if you're unfamiliar with it, a famine comes across the land. That was one of Joseph's dreams he interpreted for Pharaoh. And he had the foresight God gave him uh, to, to store up all the grain into the, the storehouses and the barns so they could be prepared for the famine. So Egypt is able to easily survive this famine. Okay, they're actually thriving during it, but all the rest of the land around there is not. They're all coming to Egypt for help, including, wait for it, Joseph's ten older brothers. So they come to Egypt and beg for help, and he's got all the chance in the world to have his revenge. Seventeen years he's been thinking about what he's going to do when he sees them again. And this story just blows me away. Because when he sees them, first off, he puts them to a little bit of a test. But then he sees them again, they beg for help, and here's the response in Genesis chapter 45. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives God sent me ahead of you. How many of you have ever faced somebody who's hurt you, hurt you badly, and your response is, hey, don't feel bad about yourself for what you did. That was God's plan. Can anybody ever honestly answer somebody else or reply to somebody else with that? Like, he's not even saying, hey, I don't hold a grudge. He's like, no, no, don't feel bad. Because when they, they realize it's him, they are terrified. They're terrified of him and what he might do to them. This is, what, this is grace, folks. This is what grace looks like. He had the chance and he had the justification to squash them. And what does he do? He opens his arms to them. And he, not only that, he immediately goes, How, how's dad? How's dad doing? How, how's the younger brother, Benjamin? How's he doing? He, he wants to know how they're all doing. This is grace. Grace is defined this way as unmerited favor. There is literally nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. I don't care if you give thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to a church, to another organization. I don't care if you're here serving and helping and doing things every single day of the week. 
Okay, I don't care how many uh, times you help the poor or help the needy. I don't care how many times you reach out to the widow or, or you reach out to, to help uh, lost kids. I don't care how many times you do that. None of that will save your soul. None of that will earn you grace. Those are things you should do in response to grace. But none of them will earn you grace. And see, here's the thing, folks. We can talk about about, about forgiving others. And we can talk about extending grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And you're like, well, well, but you don't know what they did to me. I don't care what they did to you. And I don't care if what somebody did to, did to you is worse than what somebody's done to me or anybody else because none of us have done anything to anybody else worse than what we do to Jesus every single day. Amen. And here's what Jesus did for us in Romans. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is, what's, what's our mindset? Well, you know what? When I can prove that you're no longer what you were when you hurt me, I'll forgive you. When I know you're not going to come back and hurt me again, I'll, hurt you, I'll, I'll forgive you. No. The most important word in this is the word while. While we were still sinners. Because that shows Jesus didn't wait for us to get our act together. Because if that was the case, he never would have went to the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So go back to Matthew chapter 6, when he says that unless you're forgiving other people, God can't forgive you. That's what he means. That's how serious he is about this. And getting that story of Joseph, understanding where Joseph was coming from and, and what went into Joseph's life and what built into where he was at gives me at least a perspective on forgiveness. Because what Joseph did is he did not allow his circumstance to define God's plan for his life. He realized that all of that was part of his story. All the hurt and all the pain. You don't think there were nights where Joseph was sitting in that prison cell going, I did nothing, literally nothing, to wind up here. Realize that in the Bible, there are two people, two people listed in the Bible, where it never says that they sinned. Jesus is one of them, Joseph's the other. Not to say Joseph was perfect, because the Bible says only Jesus was perfect, but not once in Scripture does it mention a sin that Joseph committed. And he's probably sitting in a prison cell going, God, I did nothing to wind up here. I did nothing to deserve this. I was studying this week, I was preparing for this, and and I came across a lesson that one of my former uh, professors just taught recently. And this really kind of shook me because it was this build on, we talk a lot about what forgiveness is, but he took a different angle on this and said what forgiveness is not. So what I want to do over the next few minutes is kind of look at that. Because again, I know a lot of you have dealt or are dealing with pain and hurt. And and, and I don't want to shortchange any of it. I don't want to just sit up here and gloss over it and go, forget everything that's happened, just forgive somebody. Because I mean, we have really, real struggles we're very human. God gave us emotions and feelings and personalities for a reason, and those can get damaged by other people. And so here's what I want to do over the next few minutes is just look at these, this list of of five, five reminders of not just what forgiveness is, but specifically what forgiveness is not, and what forgiveness does not. Here's number one. Forgiveness does not mean that you have to become vulnerable to more abuse. 
Forgiveness does not mean you have to be vulnerable to more abuse. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of it. Plain and simple. And you don't have to go back to that person who has been abusing you. If you've been in a business deal and somebody's cheated you or stolen from you, you do not have to go back into business with that person and set yourself up to be stolen from and cheated again. Forgiveness does not mean that. Forgiveness, folks, understand this, forgiveness is not immediately followed by the requirement that we have to trust the person that hurt us again. You can hope that maybe you build to that, but that's not what it leads to immediately. Here's the second thing. Forgiveness, this is is kind of why this first one's important. The second one, forgiveness does not mean we forget about our past. How many many of you heard the old phrase, you know, you need to learn to forgive and forget? Heard that my whole life. I'm willing to forgive. I never forget. I doubt you do too. Unless you've kind of built up some way to just completely repress a memory, you don't forget. And often the worse the pain, the less likely you ever are to forget. But here's something that I want you to understand with this. And I'm not... Understand, I'm not trying to dredge and pull painful memories to your surface right now. But the reason we don't forget is because there's actually a weird value in remembering that pain. Because through that pain, we grow. And often through our hurts, we learn more about God and his plan for us. Again, think about Joseph. There is zero chance Joseph forgot what happened to him. Every step along the way. And what does he say? This was God's plan all along. Not to say, hey, this was God's plan to let me get abused and beaten and and all this. No, what I'm at right now was God's plan. And here's the thing, too, that we need to understand, because we had a great model for this on on what to do with with pain to us, to forgive it but not forget it, because this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took a beating. Folks, (laughs) if, if you don't... If you've never studied about the crucifixion, it was the most barbaric, cruel act in human history, a a Roman crucifixion. And Jesus, who lived a life with no sin, took that on my behalf and your behalf. And while he was there hanging on the cross, what does he say? Luke 23, Father, forgive them. But here's the thing about Jesus. When he resurrected a few days later, and he walked the earth for another few weeks, he talked about his crucifixion. He talked about the cross. He talked about his death. And he encouraged us to do the same. That's why we take communion every week. So that we never forget the pain that Jesus endured for us. Forgiveness doesn't mean we forget about our past. Number three, forgiveness also does not mean that we ignore the consequences. There's consequences for sin. There's consequences for people who sin against you. And forgiving them does not wash away the consequences. And the same applies to you. If you've hurt somebody else and there's consequences against you, their forgiveness doesn't always wipe that away. You've probably seen or heard the story about uh, Amber Geiger, Dallas police officer who um, went into the wrong apartment and, and shot a man. Uh, by the name of, of, of Botham Jean, shot him while he was sitting on his couch. 
I'm not interested in the details of the story, but most of you probably seen this, where recently she was convicted and sentenced to prison. And as they do at the end of her trial, they allow the family to come to the, the witness stand and face, face the accused face to face and let them know what they think. And, and this is a video, you, and you've probably seen this, but it's a video of Botham's younger brother, Brant, as he gets to the witness stand that day. Here's what he told Amber Geiger, the man who shot his brother in cold blood. I speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like anyone else. But I, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ I'm not going to say anything else I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do again I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Forgiveness, it doesn't ignore the consequences, but it removes the condemnation. He would have been completely justified to hate this woman the rest of his life. He would have been completely justified to hate so many things the rest of his life. And, and, and here's the thing, folks. This action that he, that he did there, forgiving her, it not only released something from him and it released something from her, but folks, it had a ripple effect that's going to impact millions of people who neither one of them will ever meet and ever know. Because if this man can forgive this woman who walked into the wrong apartment thinking it was her own and shot somebody, ending his brother's life while he was sitting on the couch watching TV, Man, nobody's done anything anywhere close to that to me. 
Nobody's done anything close to that to my family. And if he can forgive that, man, never lose sight of how powerful forgiveness is. Number four, forgiveness, this is, it plays along with this one. Forgiveness means you release the right for revenge. This is our nature. Someone strikes and we strike back. Okay, let, let's not forget, sometimes at our core we're still, we're still animals. Someone strikes us and we strike them right back. That's what we do. And, it, uh, you know, I've always said this. Maybe somebody strikes me, I don't strike back, but you threaten my family, watch out. You threaten the ones I love, watch out. Striking back, whether you do it physically or you just think about it, takes over your life. Revenge consumes you. Remember what I said earlier? Sometimes the person who's hurt you, they don't even know they've done it. They've moved on. It's not bothering them one iota. And it's all you think about. When you're consumed with getting back and you're consumed with revenge, basically you're just letting that person dominate you. So I've got a question for you. And I want you to ask yourself this honestly. If you've got a grudge against somebody right now, ask yourself this honestly. How many more days or weeks or years are you going to allow that person control over your life? How much more of your life are you going to let them take over? How much more of your life are you going to give them the keys to? I've heard this old saying, maybe you have too, forgiveness is like drinking, or uh, revenge, grudges, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Because all it's going to do is eat away at you, slowly. Forgiveness releases that. It lets that go. It gives up that desire within you to get back at somebody else. And here's the, the fifth thing. Forgiveness is a process. It's not just an event. People have said, Kurt, I've told somebody, I forgive you and I still feel it. Well, it's not going to happen in that one moment. But that one moment is a good first step. It's coming to the realization that you need to forgive somebody else. But don't think that you're just going to be completely free from all those burdens immediately. But saying those words to somebody, I forgive you, starts the process of healing. Maybe, maybe you're in that step right now. Maybe you've forgiven somebody and, and you still have the hurt that, that won't go away. Or you still have that desire for something bad to happen to them. Try this. Just think about what was done to you. And specifically answer the question, what do you feel was taken from you? Don't just say what it was, but what do you feel like was taken from you? Okay, if you were abused as a child, don't just say, well, I was, I was abused by a child. No, say, my innocence was taken from me. My childhood was taken from me. You can able, able to start processing this a little bit more, and as, as you process it, I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to be painful, but it's going to lead to healing. Some of you have gone through physical therapy. Physical therapy hurts. It's not fun. But the end result is good because you get use of your body back. And sometimes we have to go through this with our soul. Folks, forgiveness. Jesus said it's required for us. But I want you to understand one more thing about forgiveness. It is the single most powerful tool you have to use against the enemy. Because if the enemy can get into your heart by pitting you against somebody else, He's got a good foothold for anything else. 
But when you forgive somebody else, you're basically telling the enemy, no matter what you do against me, it's not going to stick. It's not going to stick. You've seen the Captain America movies, and he's just taking a beating. What's he always say? I could do this all day. That's what you're telling the enemy. Come on, bring your best shot. You're not going to win. Keep at it. You're not going to win. Here's a quote I want you to kind of take home with you today from a, a pastor. He says this, Holding a grudge doesn't make you strong. It makes you bitter. Forgiving doesn't make you weak. It sets you free. There's a myth, I think, in our culture that we need to be tough. We need to win the fight. It's a myth. And it goes against what the gospel teaches us. Forgiveness shows off your strength because it allows God to work through you. When you forgive, you get the keys to unlock the prison and set the captive free. And you know who the captive is? Father, we are are thankful for Jesus. God, we are so thankful, Lord, that God, we know that no matter what happens to us, you're right there with us. And God, I know today, right now, there are, are, are hurts in this room. There are broken minds and spirits and souls in this room because of what we have done to each other, what others have done to us. And God, I pray today, not that, that as these, these thoughts would come up, Lord, that we would sink into that, that spot of pain and darkness, God, but we would look at those and immediately turn to you and say, help me forgive. God, we don't want to ever make light of anything that's happened to us or to each other, but God, instead, you would, would, would allow us to, to view this as step one on trusting you more. On step one, of trying to become more like you. God, knowing that there is hurt, knowing that there is struggle and pain and strife, but God, we would see that through forgiveness, there's freedom and there's beauty and there's harmony with you and with your kingdom. God, if any of us are holding a grudge, I ask, Lord, you would soften our hearts You would speak into our hearts. You would come into our hearts, Lord, so that we could, God, we could embrace your kingdom and embrace your people more. And God, too, that we could begin to understand more about why you forgave us, Lord, when we certainly didn't deserve it. So God, I just pray today for every single person here. God, you would give us the strength, the courage to to just face forward to keep moving, even when it is one of the hardest things that we could ever do. And God, I ask today too that if, 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 as we talk about all this, it's bringing hurts back to the surface, Lord, you would, you would give us peace. You would give us comfort, God. You would give us just that, that, that feeling that only you can, Lord to wrap around us and, and remind us that you love us and that we matter to you and that we're important to you. And that's ultimately the most important thing. God, we love you so much and we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.